0: Welcome to Good Friday at Emmaus Road Church. It's a little different service for us. Um, we're going to take time for a generosity moment tonight, but if you are feeling generous and you'd like to give the kiosk is in the back. And if you're new with us tonight, we really appreciate you being here on this special occasion. And would you do us the service of filling out a connect card really quickly, uh, just so that we know that you are with us. Um, not that we're a large church. I can see you all. I know you're here. So just do the connect card. Don't make me chase you down in the parking lot. Um, I say all that, but I, I um, and my wife will tell you, I can't help but insert humor um, most inappropriately at times. And tonight, it actually is a very somber night for us. Um, I, my hope for us is that we would enter into the psyche or the mindset of the disciples on, on Friday night as Jesus is um, now dead and buried and in the grave and their dismay, and their lack of clarity, their lack of understanding. We have the, the fortunate opportunity to look back in history and see with clarity the resurrection on Sunday that's coming, but if tonight we could just enter into their pain and their confusion and gain a little bit of appreciation. I want us to focus on this word tonight, scandalous. Scandalous is an adjective, and it means disgraceful, shameful or or shocking improper and i want to read for you tonight an account of the most scandalous moment in the history of mankind this night not looking ahead to the resurrection i want us to only think of the cross this week i i sought out uh, the crucifixion scene from the movie the passion of the christ on youtube and I needed to see that again. I, need, I find that I need to remember it and that the reminder for me personally needs to be very vivid for my heart to receive it and hang on to it. And I needed to see that again. And as a, fa- as a father, as a daddy, I would just be totally honest with you and tell you that I cannot begin to comprehend the love that God the Father has for us that he would give his only son to experience that that kind of excruciating death to set us free from sin. I just just want to tell you, I don't love any of you that much. And that's not a knock on you, that's just my limitation as a fallen human being. But that God loves us in this way, that the cross of Jesus Christ is a scandalous reality. And so I'd like to read Matthew 27 tonight. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, Matthew 27 if you, if you pull out a phone at this point, I see the glowing reflection on your face. I will not assume that you're surfing. I'll assume that you're reading the scripture. This is the only moment that's safe to be on your device. Um, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 27, we'll go all the way to verse 54, and I'll be inserting some commentary along the way. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion Before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it down onto his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. And they put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. You have to understand, Jesus was incredibly dehydrated. He lost a tremendous amount of blood. The process of scourging involved a long whip with leather straps with shards of metal and bone woven into the straps. Such that when those straps came across the back of the the person, those hard pieces, whether they're steel balls or pieces of bone, the balls would cause contusions and bruising. The blood would rush to those places and the, the bone and the metal shards would rip the flesh open as they were dragged across the human Back. And so there's tremendous blood loss, tremendous dehydration. Jesus is not able to carry his patibulum, the, the piece of the cross that he's carrying. And so they compel this other man to take it up for him, or they're not going to get to Golgotha. Verse 33 And when they come to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, uh, by the way, which is the place, if you go back to Genesis 22, Abraham offers Isaac. And just study your geography. That's the same spot where God led Abraham to offer up his son Isaac. And then he intervenes and he says, no, I'll, I'll provide a lamb. Well, here we are. God's providing the lamb. Verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting Lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. The the Roman guards responsible for a crucifixion were not allowed to leave the site of a crucifixion until all victims were dead. So that means they would expedite the process often. They would break legs. They would light a fire at the foot of the cross to suffocate and asphyxiate their victims to, to speed up the process of death so they didn't have to stay around for a day or two or three. Verse 37, over his head... They put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Actually, uh, we know that Pilate had it written in three different languages and that the Jewish religious leaders were not happy about the sign, right? Uh, But he said, what I have written, I have written. Deal with it. Verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down off that cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. They, they don't even realize they're quoting Psalm 22. A prophecy written 900 years before crucifixion was ever invented by the Assyrians. Crazy. Verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness. That's noon. So it got dark at noontime over the whole land until about the ninth hour, until about 3 p.m. So for three hours, darkness. I don't know if you know this, but a lunar eclipse is usually about 14 minutes. This is not a normal occurrence. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, he's calling on Elijah. And someone ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it up on a reed to give it to him to drink. But others said, let's wait and see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That, that, that deserves explanation. You're talking about a several inch thick curtain that divided the holy place from the holy of holies. And the only person that could go into the holy of holies was the high priest. And that only happened on one day every year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And he only went in covered in blood. And if, he, and if he wasn't ritually clean and he went into the Holy of Holies and the very presence of God, as it were, he didn't come out alive. And at the moment that Jesus dies, that, that veil is rent, it is torn. As the body of Jesus is torn, the way the access point to God's presence is opened for humanity not just the high priest, not just once a year, not just through special religious ceremony, but the way to God is now opened. And the earth shook and the rocks are split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised and coming out of their tombs after his resurrection. And they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what was taking place, they were filled with awe and these hardened, battle-weary Roman murderers said, truly, this was the Son of God. How then is the cross scandalous? First, The ruler, the sovereign, the king of all the universe whom all should obey at all times perfectly himself became obedient. I want you to just think about that for just a minute. The God who made everything, the God who said stars and huge balls of gas burning, flaming in the heavens appeared, the same God who spoke everything into existence became obedient. And we should be obeying him. And he demonstrates for us what obedience looks like. Paul says, Philippians 2, verse five through eight, have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He He didn't hold on to his godness and say, serve me. Look at me, make much of me. He said, no, I, I set that aside. I take the form of a servant and I'm born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and he became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus shows us humility and obedience. Jesus is the agent of creation. We know that in Genesis 1, Colossians 1, and as such, as the king, as the sovereign, which means he has the right to rule, right? He alone has that right to rule and he alone has the right to do whatever he wants to do. He bows to nobody and yet he willingly humbles himself. He obeys the father. What is is Jesus demonstrating for us? What is he trying to communicate to us? I think we think about power and, and prestige and position. We think if I could just get there, I wouldn't have to answer to anybody. I could boss people around. I, I wouldn't be under anybody's authority anymore. I deal with um, college age guys all the time and this is like a, the pandemic. I wanna be an authority. I just don't wanna be under authority. And what I tell them is if you don't learn to be under authority, you're gonna be a terrible authority. If you don't learn to be submitted to authority, you're gonna be an unwieldy, bossy jerk. You have to learn to be submitted to authority. Hebrews 5 says that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, for the first time in the history of the universe, was attempting a new thing that he'd never done before. He never experienced life as a fully human man and walked in obedience perfectly. And as he walked in obedience perfectly, he never failed in his effort and he always leaned on the Holy Spirit and he never failed. But he grew in his experience of obeying the Father. How is the cross scandalous? First, we know that the ruler of the universe whom everyone should obey became obedient. Secondly, the cross is scandalous because the perfect lawgiver willingly put himself under the law. He's the one that gave us the law. He's the one that says, here's what you should do. Here's what's right and what's wrong. This is my standard. Live by this. And we all go, we can't. Right? Galatians 4.4. Paul's writing and he says... The heir, the person who's going to inherit an inheritance, an heir to something, as long as that person's a child, he's no different than a slave, right? When they're little, it's like, well, that kid's going to inherit like $15 million. It doesn't matter. He's five. What does he know, right? He just may as well be a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, it's like you ought to bow to the child, right? But he's under guardians. He's under managers until a date that is set by his father that he inherits, In the same way, we also, when we're children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born, catch this, under the law, under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The law, God's righteous standards that that emanates from his character It's just a reflection of who he is. We look at them as rules, but God's law speaks to us about who he is and and his laws are given to us as a form of governance. It's a boundary line to, to finite people to do two things, right? It shows us God, like we said, and then it brings us to the end of our futile efforts to try to please him by our works. And when we come to the end of our effort, we go, okay, I get it. I get it. This is by grace, and we, we keep striving and trying and then we hit that wall and we can't please God, right? Now, this Romans 7, 7, Paul, I love this chapter in Romans 7. He says, I wouldn't have known what coveting was except that God said, don't covet. And then I was like, oh, oh, I want that thing, right? If, if you don't think that there's a sin nature and that there's a law in the universe, like have kids and then tell your three-year-old, no, don't touch that. Mm-hmm. And then just watch what happens. Like They didn't even know that thing was in the room. But you said, don't touch the thing. And now they are consumed with touching the thing, right? Because that's what the law does is it brings the knowledge of sin. It says, this is the thing you shouldn't do. And now that you know that you shouldn't do it, there's a part of you that wants to more than you ever have before. Galatians Later in Galatians 3, Paul would say that the law is like a schoolmaster. In Roman culture, the schoolmaster was kind of a, uh, he wasn't a slave, but he was like a house servant, and he was trusted with getting the kids to school so that they didn't go truant, they didn't skip out. And sometimes uh, there are stories in Roman life and Roman culture of that, 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 schoolmaster taking the child, just grabbing them by the earlobe. Moms, you know what that's like, right? You, not, none of that, any of you ever did that to your children, ever. Just grab, grab them by the earlobe and make sure that they get where they're gotta go, right? And, and Paul says, this is the picture. The law grabs you by the earlobe and takes you right to the foot of the cross. It says, that's where you're supposed to be. Come to the end of yourself. You've got nothing. You've got nothing. And here, Jesus places himself under that standard for our sakes. That's amazing. And in his perfect obedience, he reflects the character of God back to us. So how is the cross scandalous? Well, we said that the ruler of the universe became obedient and that the perfect lawgiver put himself under his own law. But there's a third way that the cross is scandalous. The most heinous evil in history brought about the most glorious good we could imagine. Paul would say in Romans 8, that we know that for those who love God, and that's a particular subset of humanity, right? Not every human being breathing air loves God. But for those who love God, and who are called according to his purpose, all things that happen in their lives work together for good, because they love him, because he's working that in their lives. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. He wants to expand the family, right? And so Paul, inspired by the spirit of God, he doesn't stutter, he doesn't stumble, right? It's this Greek word we translate all that means all. All things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, Even the murder of Jesus, even deicide, brings salvation for mankind. We call it Good Friday, but we only call it Good Friday in retrospect. Only when Sunday arrives and we look back can we appreciate it for what it really is. Jesus had come in the flesh, right? He healed the sick and the lame. He raised the dead. And after three and a half years of refusing to be made king by force, he orchestrates his own presentation and coronation to the people of Israel according to the prophecy in Zechariah 9. So everybody's up, everybody's excited and expecting and anticipatory, but now their rabbi's dead. And they had just celebrated the Passover last night. And Jesus had taken the cup, the cup of wine. You may not know this. In Jewish tradition, this is a wedding proposal because when a young man fell in love with a young woman and wanted to marry her, he would go talk to his dad. He'd say, dad, I found the one. I wanna go, I gotta go get her. I gotta go get her dad would say okay let's go and they would go together to the bride's house to the girl's house and the dads would talk and they'd work out the deal because in an agrarian society right when you're going to lose a daughter from the home that's a huge loss it's a huge loss that family has to be compensated and so they would agree on the, on the bride price. And, and then once that had been established between the fathers, the father of the son would pour the cup of wine and he would hand it to the son. Now the son goes to the potential bride and he says, this is a cup of my blood poured out for you in a new covenant. Will you drink? Hey, big question mark. Is she gonna say yes? And she could do two things. She could refuse the cup or she could take the cup and drink. And in doing so, she's saying, "Yes, I want to enter into covenant with you. I want to marry you." And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took that cup, he said, "Guys, I love you. Will you enter into covenant with me?" "Wow." Wow." And then he's arrested. He's taken away and scourged and crucified. And all their hopes of God's kingdom on earth coming presently were dashed. And suddenly there's no clarity. There's only confusion and gloom and despair. And for the disciples, this is not Good Friday. Not yet. The crowds had welcomed him into the city on lamb selection day. We call that Palm Sunday now. They had hoped for many of the same things. They had hoped for a literal, political, military kingdom coming to earth to rid them of the Roman occupation. Hosanna, deliver us, save us. And then their unmet expectations and their fickle hearts made them ready tools in the hands of the religious leaders. Their shouts of Hosanna turned out to be shouts of give us Barabbas. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The son of David became cries of crucify him. only Satan and his unwitting accomplices thought this was a good Friday at that moment in history. The Sanhedrin thought they'd done God a great service by silencing a blasphemer. Satan thought that he'd thwarted God's plan by killing the son. Neither understood the role that they actually played in the grand redemption that God had laid out before the foundation of the world. And the followers of Jesus looked on the cross that Friday as a tragedy. We look back now, we see it as great triumph. That on the cross, mankind was redeemed and purchased by the precious blood of the Passover lamb. So let's go back to the cross for just a moment as we finish. How can it be that one man, one human man, should suffer for a few hours and then die and in doing so, redeem a multitude of men and women from an eternity of torment? That doesn't make any sense how one man could accomplish that until you realize the answer. That one man is worth more than all people together. He's worth more. And that's humbling because I thought this was all about me. And it's not, it's about him. And his love on display for the world to see. That powerful God, you know, the one who in, in, in our minds only wants to rule everything and boss us humans around and tell us what to do and threaten us. That's the same God hanging on the cross with his arms outstretched saying, look at me. I am the God that you fear and the God that you hate. This is the manifestation of my great love for you. Come to me in faith and live John 1 tells us that Jesus was the word made flesh, fulfilling the Torah, fulfilling the law of God. And that flesh, as we talked about a moment ago, was rent, was torn for our sakes, just as the temple veil was torn at the moment of Christ's death to give us access to the holy place, even the very presence of God himself. And this is what we remember when we partake in the Lord's Supper. As we partake in the bread from the earth and from the fruit of the vine, we remember the sacrifice that's made on our behalf to reconcile us to God. And here at Emmaus Road, we recognize that this is a memorial. A sacrament is just a fancy church word, whether it's baptism or communion, it's just a physical depiction of a spiritual reality. We're just doing something in the physical that illustrates what's really happening in the unseen spirit realm. And the reality is that the blood of Christ brings us into a new covenant. And so we receive the elements of communion symbolically with that reality in mind. It it was not, you know, it wasn't the plan of the Jews who killed Messiah, it was not the Romans, it was me, it was you. It was the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. And I love the lyric, the song that we sing sometimes, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And the lyric says, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has bought me life. I know that it is finished. And that is why we will identify with the betrayer tonight because tonight Messiah is dead. He's in the ground and Sunday has not yet come. And my hope is that we go out of this place tonight in introspection and somberness, thinking upon this reality. So let me give you some clear directions here. In just a moment, the worship team's gonna start playing again. And when they begin to play, I, I wanna invite each one of you, uh, as you feel led, if you feel like uh, you have a relationship with Jesus and you, you wanna partake of those elements, to just leave your seat uh, as, you, as you are ready and, and make your way over to the table, to my right, your left, and just take... Uh, one of each of the elements, and we go bigger cups, not the little ones. You can't even taste the juice. It's like, I need a—I need something hefty, right? So come get a cup and get a piece of, uh, wafer and then come back to your seats and hold on to those for just a minute until the song is finished. And then I'm going to come back up and I'm going to read a scripture and we'll partake of those elements together. So as the team plays and sings, you sing with them and just go over there at your leisure and partake and then, excuse me, grab the elements and then come back to your seats and we'll, uh, we'll partake together.